Again, thank you to Breck for preaching last week. Um, he began chapter four in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians where we're, we're preaching through. And there's a, a, t- a turn that takes place in, in the fourth chapter of Paul's letter. And theologians call it the turn from the indicative to the imperative. Or in other words, the turn from making statements to making demands. And if you're listening closely, you can hear his turn expressed in the different ways Paul addresses the Ephesians beginning in chapter 4. In chapter 4, you begin to hear Paul place demands on the Ephesians. He begins using words of obligation. Words like should, must, ought, do, don't. In the first three chapters, these sorts of words are almost absent altogether. Because in the first three chapters, Paul's not making demands, he's making observations. In the first three chapters, you hear Paul say things like, you were dead, but God has made you alive in Christ. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And you who once were far off, God has brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. In the first three chapters, Paul's making observations about the identity of sinners in light of God's gracious work of redemption. He's articulating the gospel, which says that at birth we were dead to God and estranged from him on account of our sinful nature. And yet God pursued reconciliation with us out of love. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf, God gave us life and a new nature so that we might again choose to do those things that are good for us and pleasing to him. He has forgiven our past and offers us a bright future. And therefore, in Christ, Christians are forgiven their many sins and failures. And instead of anticipating judgment, they have only an undeserving and eternal embrace to look forward to. Through belief in Jesus, we are promised a a world in which there will be no more injustice or wrong. And all the evils of this world which daily grieve us will be healed with joy. The future, this glorious promised future, bleeds into the present as well. And it fills Christians with the courage necessary to live holy and virtuous lives of conviction in this world. Because regardless of what happens to us in the body and in this world, our lives are inextricably linked to Christ by grace through faith. This promise of forgiveness and hope is a promise that God continues to whisper in this world and in the ears of those who are listening. And if you're hearing this gracious promise of divine peace and love for the first time, then I pray that God would begin stirring your affections for himself as you hear Paul present to you the gospel in the first three chapters of Ephesians. I pray that all of us would meditate upon this gospel daily and take note, take note, that it isn't until the fourth chapter that any shoulds or do's or don'ts even enter into the picture. You know, it's commonly believed, even within the minds of Christians, that Christianity is, is concerned only with behavior, helping you to live a good and moral life. But morality is actually not at the heart of Christianity. Christianity is not just a list of rules. If it were, then why does Paul wait until the fourth chapter to make demands upon the Ephesians? Why not start with the do's and don'ts in chapter 1, verse 1? And bigger than just Ephesians, why is the Bible full of stories and not just a list of proverbs or, or, or rules? 
all these story, stories merely intended to be moral examples as if they were a collection of Aesop's fables? Is the best way to read these stories by mining a moral nugget out of them? Be like David, not like Saul? I mean, that's a bad way to read any story. Especially stories where the characters are as complex as David and Moses, Ruth and Abraham. Be like David is probably not something you want to teach your children. When you consider the fact that he had an affair with another man's wife, most likely a non-consensual one at that, and had the man killed to cover it up. Stories are complicated. Human lives are complicated, even biblical ones. So why are these stories there? And why does Paul spend the first three chapters of his letter telling the story of Jesus Christ, of God's redemption of the world, waiting until the fourth chapter of his letter to begin making demands upon the Ephesians. Because the Bible is first and foremost a story about how God mercifully and graciously forgives sinners through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And that is the heart of Christianity. So that is where Paul begins. And it's where we should begin as well. And all the stories about David and Moses and Ruth and Abraham... These are intended not to teach us some moral truth, although they do do that at times, but to whet our appetite for Jesus Christ, a truly perfect man who could actually save us because he was also God, a man actually worthy of imitation. And through faith in his perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, we are forgiven And our old self, corrupted by sin, is put to death. And we're raised to new life in the middle of life. And out of this new life comes obedience to the do's and don'ts of Christianity. The do's and don'ts that are delayed until the fourth chapter. And there's a delay because obedience is a response. It is not an initiation. Christians strive to live holy lives because they have been redeemed, not because they are seeking redemption. Joy motivates us, not anxiety or fear. Therefore, Paul's appeal to live a good and moral life is an appeal to consistency with what has been made true of you in Jesus Christ, what he declares in the first three chapters. Consistency with who you are in him, which he explains in detail. But moving on to verse 4, according to verses 22 and 24, the Christian now possesses both an old self and a new self. The old self, Paul says, belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The new self, on the other hand, has been made to look like God in true righteousness and holiness. So there are two selves, but one is old and one is new which means that one will endure while the other is destined to fade. But there are two selves still. And as long as we are on this side of eternity, our old self will always be around. But we do not have to wear it any longer, Paul says. In fact, to do so would be inconsistent with who Christ has made us, with the first three chapters of Ephesians. As Paul begins to turn from making observations to making demands, he adopts this image of clothing to describe this dynamic between the old self and the new self in the life of the Christian. The story of the Christian that Paul tells is almost like that of a man who's fallen into poverty and homelessness. 
He has no connections, no family, no hope. And living on the street, his clothes have become torn and soiled. But one day a person walks up to him while sitting on a park bench and after confirming his identity, informs him that a, a unknown and distant relative has died and left him a large inheritance. And almost overnight, the man finds himself in an entirely new position. He has a home now, food in his cupboards. He has cupboards and a new wardrobe to replace the torn and soiled clothes he once wore. His position is completely changed. But despite the change, this man does something strange. Rather than dispose of his tattered and dirty clothes, he keeps them. And from time to time, he puts them on. And he wanders the hallways of his expansive home in filthy and stinking rags. And he sits at his table reeking of filth while eating a finely prepared meal with freshly polished silver. It is a most unusual and inconsistent sight to see. But his actions are no more unusual and inconsistent than the Christian who gossips or is deceptive or speaks carelessly or acts foolishly or is unable to control his anger or is sexually deviant or harbors bitterness in her heart or lacks discipline or drinks too much or is argumentative and ungrateful. These are some of the many don'ts that Paul lists out in our passage this morning. Paul's point is that the Christian's position has completely changed through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, Christians are now children of the living God, heirs to an imperishable and incomparable inheritance, and loved beyond their wildest imagination. And it's a position that is secure as long as Christ is alive and seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. To be clear, Paul's not threatening here. This is not fire and brimstone, hell and damnation. This is an appeal to live according to who you are in Jesus Christ. The clothing that is appropriate for a person in Jesus Christ is holiness and purity and justice. The new man, as Paul says. And to live any other way is inconsistent with who Christ has made you. It's to return to the filth and stench of your former life, which you either experienced or were spared from altogether. To flirt with sin. To gesture towards it. To hide it from others. is to lounge around a mansion in reeking rags. It's utterly inconsistent. And so in chapter 4, Paul begins to, to demand that Christians live as they have become in Jesus Christ. To pursue that. To commit themselves to it. Paul is commanding you to dedicate yourself to the pursuit of purity and innocence. Not only for your own sake, but for the sake of the communities in which you live. For your families, your places of work, your church, your neighborhoods, your social media platforms. And it's extremely challenging what Paul says here. It is to me at least. Because Paul calls out things that our culture has made palatable. That should in reality be revolting to us. We should be exposing things unholy and unjust. As Paul says in verse 11. Shining light on them. But our tolerance has grown too high for things unholy. Things contradictory to our position in Christ. In 5.3, Paul says that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. 
And again, in verse 12, he writes that it's shameful to even speak of the things that are done in secret. Paul's not even talking about doing things here. He's talking about discussing the things that are done by others. The things we are willing to watch, though. The conversations we repeat or retweet. The dynamics we tolerate in order to avoid conflict are contradictions of our identity in Christ. Paul would be shocked by our tolerance of these things and confused by how tolerance has become the chief virtue of our day. There are some things of which a Christian must be intolerant or else they will live in contradiction to their identity in Christ. And it's important, again, to say here that Paul is not threatening. He's not being legalistic here. He's not going, watch out, God's going to get you. Not at all. What Paul is saying is, you're better than this. He's appealing to what is true of you, your identity in Christ. He's appealing to the restored nature in you so that you might choose to live in ways that are consistent with Jesus Christ so that you might put on the new man. His intent is a positive one. He's encouraging what is good, which is why for every don't, there's a corresponding do. He isn't scolding, but he's guiding like a parent to their child giving you something to move towards. Because the Christian life is not a mere life of negation, but of walking into something better, becoming more like Jesus Christ and introducing Jesus' kingdom to the world. And therefore, throughout this passage, from 417 to 520, you typically have a don't, a do, and then some supporting reason, this new reality that Christ has introduced into the world in order to reinforce the negation and the addition. And a prime example is in verse 25. Paul writes, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Don't lie, but tell the truth. Why? Because you belong to your neighbor. You have an obligation to them. The kingdom of God presses back against the individuality of our world and forces us to consider our neighbor. Verse 28 is another example. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Don't steal, but work, so that you can contribute to society rather than undermining and threatening it. The kingdom of God encourages responsibility and sets us in the context of a larger community for whom we are responsible. Our things are not our own. They're God's. And we don't have time to go through all of the examples, this, this new ethic, this new, uh, this new kingdom that, that Christ has introduced into the world. We don't have time to go through all the examples. But what's going on here is that Jesus is seeking to introduce his kingdom into this world one person at a time. It begins with you. His kingdom is expansion project begins in your heart and in your speech and in your bodies, the way you conduct yourselves. He introduces his kingdom to the world as the Holy Spirit brings about greater consistency in the lives of Christians who have been redeemed by grace. Your pursuit of purity and holiness, that's the means by which the kingdom of God breaks into this world. And we begin to get a glimpse now of what God has promised 
for us in the future. We get a glimpse of a, a just, holy, and pure society as you begin to live lives that are just, holy, and pure, as you live more faithfully to whom God has made you in Christ. The days are evil, Paul says in 5.16, which rings very true these days. The days are evil, he says, but we can redeem the short time we are given by living consistently in Christ and introducing his kingdom to this world. We can't control the amount of time we have, but we can control the quality of that time. We can increase the value of that time. We can make it good. And there are many things you can do, but I'm going to give you three things you can do. Start with the gospel. Start with the gospel. Every day you must remind yourselves of who you are in Christ. That's where it all starts. Paul delays the do's and don'ts until chapter 4. He begins with the gospel, and so should you. Memorize the entirety of Ephesians chapter 2 and recite it aloud to yourself every day. Scripture memory isn't just for children, it's for adults as well. Memorize Ephesians 2, you can do it, I challenge you. And every day remind yourself of who you, are, who you are in Jesus Christ. The second is to recognize that the, the pursuit of God, or the, the adoption of an ethic, the pursuit of what is good, requires humility. Because personal choice is not self-justifying. Personal choice saying this thing is good or this thing is bad is not actually a, a, a statement that assigns value. You can't avoid the need to weigh things against each other. You might say this is good or this is bad, but what are you standing on? Just your own whim, your own personal sense. So you have to weigh things against each other. And we have to acknowledge that, that... that Choosing what is good requires a weight, requires saying things are better than other things. And if we rely on personal choice alone, our choices often don't cohere into a cohesive system. We, we inherit, we receive an ethic. We receive something that is a definition of what is good. And as Christians, this is a kingdom ethic. What is made known to us and scripture. So we read scripture. And we do so doing this third thing. Praying Psalm 139 verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Read scripture daily and pray that prayer with sincerity every day and God will begin to show you the inconsistencies in your life. You will say something and you'll be bothered <laughs> because the Holy Spirit in you is saying, you're better than this. That's inconsistent. You'll watch something that before was you would tolerate and, and you'll be bothered because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, showing you the many ways your life does not line up with who he's made you. But despair not, for you are a child of the living God, 
as long as Christ is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't forget the gospel. You are an heir to an imperishable and incomparable inheritance. Don't forget the gospel. You are the temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. You're loved, and you're better than this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.